Good morning, church. It's a great blessing to be here today. Would you please join me in prayer as we begin? Mighty God, we praise you, we adore you, we give glory to you. Oh, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Jesus, you are the stronghold of our lives. You're the rock and the foundation that sets us firm. Allow this passage, Father, to come alive today. May the Spirit of God move in our midst, reminding us of the importance of prayer, the importance of what it takes to be firm in you as believers. May all glory and honor be given to you, precious King, in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Amen. We have arrived today to Philippians chapter 4. And I've given the title to this sermon, Standing Firm with Joy and Resolve in the Spirit. Standing Firm with Joy and Resolve in the Spirit. In chapter 1, if you remember, Paul had commanded the Philippian church to prioritize the gospel to take the gospel as a foundation for their walk in life. In chapter 2, Paul is urging the, the church at Philippi to take the example of Jesus Christ and follow in humbleness just like he did. He actually takes the Philippian passage, which is originally a hymn, and he sets the example of Christ who being Inequality with God did not steam equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather humble himself by becoming a human, one of us. And in the condition of humanity, he humbled himself even more by becoming a servant. And so Paul is appealing to the Philippian church to follow the example of Jesus, who being in the condition of God, humble himself. And he's saying to them, humble yourselves, seek to be humble as the Lord is humble. Chapter 3, Paul admonishes the Philippian church to imitate worthy, godly believers, leaders. And now in chapter 4, the apostle emphatically exhorts believers to stand firm and to never give up their walk of faith in Christ. Now we move to a transitional text. In chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, my beloved, and whom I long for, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He uses the word, my beloved, twice. He's emphatically making the point that they are dear to him. He says that they are that which they or he has longed for. And he calls them his joy. But he also calls them a crown. The Greek word for crown here is stephanos, which was the leafy crown given to the winners at the Olympics. In other words, he's telling them, you are my reward. I worked hard in order to achieve that you all would come to know our Savior. 
and I take great gratification in the fact that you are walking with Christ. He invested his life to seek their blessing, and they were witnesses of his tangible love. Paul could never forget a time in which he and Silas prayed with women at the riverside in Acts chapter 16, and how Lydia's heart had actually been touched by the Spirit of God at that point, and she turned to Jesus, acknowledging the Savior. Paul could never forget how he prayed and sang praises unto God in the Philippian prison, and how God miraculously opened the doors and caused the jail to shake. How prisoners heard them praising, and they were in awe as to what was happening at that point. How the jailer himself was overtaken by that experience, and he turned his heart toward the Lord, believing in the Savior. A very intimate love marked here the relationship between Paul and the members of the Philippian church. They cared for him. They loved him. He loved them, and he cared dearly for them. Paul's love for them is demonstrated once again by the way he exhorts them towards determination and dependency through these verses. His goal is that they may be, that, that they may be found firm in the Lord in spite of the difficult circumstances that they are experiencing. Church, this letter, the letter to the Philippians, reminds us that there must be or that we must have resolve and determination in our lives along with an attitude of dependency if we are to experience unwavering firmness, firmness as followers of Jesus. Yes, difficulties and struggles may come but they will never affect our lives to the point of bringing about despair and hopelessness if we maintain an attitude of determination and dependence upon the King of glory, Jesus our Savior. Family, the first point drawn from these verses is this. We must stand firm by determining to pursue like-mindedness, unity and integrity, in relationships with other believers. See, Paul is talking to a church. They're all believers at this point, and he's addressing their issues. We are a church, and we have come to know the Savior. We are thankful for what he's done for us. Paul addresses the church, and he makes an appeal at the very beginning to two particular women within the church. It reads in verse 2 and 3, I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Other translations place the text or render the text, I urge or I beseech or I implore you to agree in the Lord. Paul uses the word here, directing it to a single or two, two single individuals rather than to the whole church. Previously, he's used that word beseech or urge in reference to the whole church. But in this particular place in the text, he is addressing two women. This shows that Paul did not consider them opponents. In fact, it shows that Paul esteemed these two women as known leaders in the Philippian congregation. 
They were not new believers. They were not newcomers to the church. These women had worked with Paul side by side for the sake of the gospel. They were leading women giving toward the pursuit of evangelism, of the spread of the gospel. And yet these women, Eodia and Syntyche, could not seem to get along. This was no punctual disagreement. It seemed to be a consistent trend between these two women. These women seemed to have been divided, finding no common ground between them. There is evidence in the wider context of Scripture to affirm that Paul is not speaking here about a casual, sporadic disagreement, since Paul shows his concern emphatically. In addition, he himself experienced sharp disagreements with Peter, for example, in Galatians 2, over the keeping of kashrut, of the dietary laws, when Jewish believers and Gentile believers were eating together. And he calls out Peter for his double standard. In Acts chapter 15, there's another confrontation here where Paul and Barnabas sharply disagree over the decision of taking Barnabas's young cousin, John Marcus, on his second missionary journey. Acts 15, verse 39 and 40 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers in the grace of the Lord. It says here a sharp disagreement. So clearly this was not simply a disagreement. This was a constant trend of division within this two uh, within this church among these two ladies. The text does not qualify their disagreement as causing them to sin, but they did part ways in the case of Paul and Barnabas, and God blessed their journeys. This goes to show that disagreements are really not the issue at stake here, not even sharp disagreements. The issue exists when there is unwillingness to recognize and be reconciled after the disagreement has turned into a strife or rivalry. At that point, the flesh, our sin nature, gets completely involved, causing us to get entangled in sin and often affecting our lives and the lives of others. James chapter 4, verse 1 reminds us where this sort of strife comes from. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, your passions that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Paul also tells us what it means to be in the flesh or act in the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for while there is still jealousy and strife among you, are you not acting in the flesh or carnally, behaving like mere human. So in the fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul is urging, pleading before the whole congregation that these two leading women of the church may be reconciled and that they may seek unity, like-mindedness. Paul is not exercising his heavy-handed authority as an apostle. His appeal is actually personal impassionate. 
Paul is also making an appeal to these ladies in line of what he had previously mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2, where he wrote, Complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in the Spirit and having one purpose. Paul's concern for their need of unity is so strong that he is also seeking mediation from a local leader of the church. In verse 3, it says, Yes, I asked you also, true companion, in the Greek, true yoked fellow, help these women, he says, who have labored, strived, stri struggle along side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names in the book of life. See, Paul is making that strong appeal, and he's saying, help me with these two ladies. They're great leaders. God has used them. I cannot believe that this division continues on, and he appeals to the people of the church, appeals to leaders of the church, and says to them, seek to bring unity among them. It is possible that a division had taken place among the leaders of the church at Philippi at this point, and Paul here is making an appeal for unity and wisely a voice to make sides. If you notice at the very beginning in the argument of, Philip, of the letter to the Philippians, going through the second chapter, it's all about humbleness, seeking humbleness, seeking unity, having our foundation in the gospel, seeking to follow the example of godly leaders. And at this point, he makes that strong appeal, saying, please stand firm in the Lord. We must always remember that our unity is based on a solid foundation. Family, Christ is our foundation. The rock is our foundation. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome challenges and remain in unity. You may be surprised to know that sometimes among the elders here at the church, we have differences in Sometimes those differences are over non-essential doctrinal positions. And we come with sharp distinctions at times, but the unity is never compromised. God has allowed us, by the grace of God, unity as a counsel, and that is of great blessing. See, the problem is not having sharp differences on details. The problem is going beyond the differences to establish division. And that is what Paul is dealing with here. Family in unity, God's blessing remains. Psalm 133 is a beautiful song that is sung in Israel often, and we sing often with our family. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, in unity. Psalm 133, David puts these words together and he says, Behold how good, how pleasant, how beautiful it is to be together in unity as brothers. For there, says verse 3, the Lord commanded the blessing and life forevermore. Church blessings abide where the unity is sustained. This is my second point. Stand firm, church. 
by resolving to always rejoice in the Lord. This is something that Paul is emphasizing as well. He says in verses 4 and 5, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul says here, rejoice always. Paul uses an imperative form in the verb, uh, in the Greek, which communicates that this is not an, an alternative. It is rather something that must be obeyed. But how can we always be joyful when we're still experiencing losses and pains in this life? Paul knew this very well. He was no stranger to pain. And yet he gave an example of pursuing joy by the Spirit of God. The church was suffering also. The fact that the planting apostle Paul was in prison was an aspect of suffering for the church. The church had endured suffering when one of their leaders, Epaphroditus, who had been their messenger, bringing an offering to Paul while he was in a Roman prison, had become gravely ill and almost died. And now in chapter 4, the church is suffering a division within the church because of two leading women who could not get along. And yet Paul is telling the church, rejoice, rejoice. Not sometimes, not when things seem to be going their expected way, but to rejoice always. This is a supernatural joy that comes from having communion with Christ through the mediation of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22 says, Tell us that, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. Paul lived this way himself. He pursued a supernatural joy to be a distinctive of his life. Paul set up an example for them often. He was an example of virtue. He had been arrested and placed in prison. He had been beaten, bruised. His feet had been placed in stocks, and yet neither Paul nor Silas, who was his companion during his first trip to Philippi, show self-pity. In fact, the opposite, in the middle of the night, while they were in jail, they started worshiping God with all of their heart. And what does the text of Scripture say? It says that an earthquake shook the jail and the door swung open. And as a consequence, the jailer came to know the Lord and surrender to the touch of the Holy Spirit by acknowledging Jesus the Messiah. Paul gives them reasons of joy. In chapter 1, he says, In all prayers that I do for you, I always pray with joy because your partnership is in the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice with me. In chapter 3, Paul picks up on this same theme, and he writes, Finally, Brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, he returns and emphasizes the need to rejoice once again. You see, the, the source of Paul's joy was the Lord himself. He was always prompt 
to recognize God's work in his life in spite of what he was living through in his current circumstances. This is what the joy rests, family. We too have so much to rejoice over. We have been redeemed and rescued. We have been made alive in Christ. Psalm 40, verse 2 and 3, tells us, I waited patiently for the Lord. He bent down to me and heard my cry. He brought me out from the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and then he set my feet upon the rock. That is the reality of the believer. He has given us a new standing. In verse 5, he also reminds us, saying, we ought to let our gentleness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. We must seek to be filled with the Spirit daily, and prayer in the Spirit is key to accomplish this goal. Point three, stand firm, church, in the Lord by resolving to deny anxiety entry into your life, determining rather to be passionately given toward prayer. That is the key. That is the key. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace that surpasses all understanding is a supernatural peace that only he can give. It's the peace that he had when he was in the boat in the midst of the storm. Even though the apostles were shaking up, and Peter comes and wakes up the Lord and says, Lord, do you not care that we're about to die? He was sleeping. Why? Because he knew that nothing was going to happen. He had the peace of God. That is the supernatural peace. Paul was telling us to rejoice at this point and to embrace this peace. This is some demanding statement when you think about, when you think about it. When you think about just simply embracing a peace that does not come naturally to us, but we do this in faith. Since these are supernatural demands, it is our duty to resolve to pursue earnestly alive in the Spirit, which gives us the supernatural power to accomplish these demands. Acts chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 8 gives us a key text. Jesus told the apostles, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, until the end of the earth. Power comes from the Spirit of God. Prayer, earnest prayer, brings the Spirit of God to be in control of your life. This is what Paul's talking about. Supplication, insisting prayer, unceasing requests before the Lord, bending your knees before God daily, eagerly seeking Him will cast out all fear, will cast out all anxiety. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast out all fears before the Lord for He takes care of you. This is hard to do in the flesh, but if you earnestly seek his face through prayer, he will give you the power to do it. 
If there was ever a time that I needed peace that surpasses all understanding and a supernatural ability to not be anxious for what was going on in my life, that time was when my friend Emil Bulks from Holland came to Colombia to visit with me. While we were traveling from Cali to Bogota in the middle of the night, a shooting took place. We were on the floor of the bus and shots fired back and forth through the bus windows during an encounter between the group of soldiers from the Colombian National Army and a cell group of guerrilla forces. I could just hear the shots. We were on the floor and people crawled toward us. I had a small Bible with me because we were going to a youth conference and I opened it to Psalm 91 and started yelling out the words of Psalm 91 and people were crawling on the bus coming toward me. You can imagine my friend. He lived in a small town near Amsterdam. He commuted to his job and bicycle looking over the windmills and the tulips. He had, <laughs> okay, he, he wanted the earth to swallow him. But the Lord gave us peace. The Lord gave us peace. And the fact that we started crying out to God and reading Scripture together brought the people within the bus toward us because they saw hope when they heard the voice of one who was quoting the Scriptures. Church family, worry and anxiety are first cousins, and they are not feelings that display confidence in God. On the contrary, they seem to communicate lack of trust in Him. Corey Ten Boom knew the destructive force of worry when she said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worry and anxiety wage war against our lives, and God wants us to be filled with his peace. Church family, if you engage in any of these draining, negative mind battles just like I do from time to time, then you need to know that God's plan for you is peace and joy, and not worry nor anxiety. His plan for you is rest and not stress. It is peace and not turmoil. Jesus said it in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace of Christ, the peace that God can give, will cast out all fear from within our lives. This is the supernatural peace that these passages point out filling our minds and our hearts. And finally, church, resolve to pursue a constant renewal of your mind by the Spirit of God. Verses 8 and 9, finally, says Paul, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Church family, the battle, the battle is won in our mind by the Spirit of God. All of these virtues, what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, will come to mind if we're yielding to the Spirit of God 
and we are earnestly seeking him through prayer and the reading of scripture daily. If we submit our bodies to him and our minds to him, this would be a reality. But you may say, how can we, when there is constant battle sometimes in our minds? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 has been a go-to passage for me when I find that even my thoughts are coming against my will and they become an obstacle or a stumbling block. Paul writes, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Make this your daily prayer. Renew your mind constantly through the offering of your body and mind, through the worship of the Lord and through prayer, by dwelling in the Word and by singing praises to the King. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is what we do when we worship. This is what we do when we come before the Lord and we bend our knees and we give Him glory. This is what gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding. Alive in step with the Spirit is the fulfillment of God's desires for us. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest theologian in American history, wrote a work known as Religious Affections. And he emphatically asserts that true religion is not lifeless morality of the mind, nor an uninformed seal of the heart. Rather, he writes that true religion is characterized by the nature and signs and the gracious operations of the Spirit of God. Rely on the Spirit of God. Seek the guidance of the Spirit of God, and you will experience true religion. In his work, The Presence and the Power, The Significance of the Holy Spirit in the Life and Ministry of Jesus, Gerald F. Hawthorne writes these. Each of the gospel writers describes that Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit through his entire life to enable him to burst the boundaries of his human limitations. The Holy Spirit, who descended upon him at his baptism, entered into him, filled him, was the Spirit of God who infused him with the power to overcome temptations, teach with authority, challenge Establish religious structures in the name of God. See people not in the mass, but as individuals. Sense the inner joy of each person or their pain and hurt. Reach out and touch people. Lift them up. Help them. Heal them. Find them. Redeem them. Save them. Restore them to the mission of his Father in order to accomplish that which he had given him to do. He did it by the power of the Spirit. The Lord, in his earthly ministry, set an example for us. Because he is God, but while he was on earth, he was fully human and still is fully human today and fully God. But he did not take advantage of his deity, of his uh, nature as God, as something to, to, uh, to, to take advantage of in order to live in, in an advantageous way. Rather, he lived by the guidance of the Spirit. This is the example that we have. Paul ends, finally, 
by appealing once again to the theme repeated in chapter 3. And he says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Church family, there must be resolve, determination in our lives, along with an attitude of dependency upon the Holy Spirit if we are to experience unwavering firmness as followers of Jesus. This is how we stand firm in the Lord. This is the secret to a life of victory. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the greatest gift you could have given us. The presence of the third person of the triune God, this precious spirit of God dwelling within us. The moment we were saved, we were indwelled by him. And sometimes we neglect him. Sometimes we do not think of him. But it is in him that the power to live a victory in life lies. Would you, Lord, ignite our lives through the Spirit? Would you lead us to depend more upon him? Would you make us earnest seekers of the guiding hand of the Spirit of God in order to give glory to you, Lord Jesus, in order to glorify God the Father? We praise you, Lord. What a privilege. Receive all glory and exaltation and honor. Keep us in unity, O Lord, as a church. Allow us to stand firm in the faith and resolve in the spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.